Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. As we all know, the life of a church can be a very delicate thing, and the slightest change can throw everything off. So I'm going to attempt to preach a sermon this morning, having just sat in a different seat in the sanctuary. So please be patient and gracious and understanding with me during this difficult time. Well, this morning concludes our time in the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And next week, we'll begin reading his slightly more complicated second letter to the same group of believers. But in these first three chapters, we saw Paul thanking God for this small, suffering, but faithful young church. At the beginning of chapter four, Paul shifted his focus and began filling up what was lacking in their faith, namely reminding them of the importance of their ongoing growth in holiness, a word we sometimes refer to with sanctification. We'll talk more about sanctification here in a few moments. And last week, Paul corrected some misunderstandings among the Thessalonians regarding death, resurrection, and Christ's return. Now, part of the reason Paul felt the need to correct those misunderstandings is because what we believe about these future events shapes how we live now. Christians grieve death, but we do not grieve without hope. And while Christians do die, we look forward to resurrection. And that resurrection occurs when Christ returns in power and glory. What we believe about these things in the future affects how we live now. So in the meantime, we stay awake. We walk as children of light. And we encourage one another to press on in faith and obedience. But this morning we'll read the final few verses of First Thessalonians. And if you've been here for very long, you've heard me say it before. And if you stay here for long, you'll hear me say it again. When you read the Bible, don't overlook the closing verses of a book. Now, sure, these words may seem a bit more scattered than the rest. And no, they might not contain the same brilliant theology, encouraging teaching, or inspiring challenges that are typically found right smack in the middle of a letter. But these words are here for a reason. They're still part of God's powerful and inspired word. And that means there was value in these closing words for the church in Thessalonica. It also means that there's value for every church in these closing words. And that includes our church. So open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But let's pray together before we read. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Uh, there are so many things happening in our lives. Uh, some of us are coming in here having had a great week and looking forward to the days ahead. And some of us have hit rock bottom. And some of us are somewhere in between. Uh, but Lord, I pray that 
Our worship would be honoring to you. That's the main point of Sunday morning. But I also pray that you would encourage us and help us and comfort us and challenge us in the ways that we need this morning. You don't need our worship. You're still God, whether we worship you or not. But, Lord, I pray that we would recognize our need to worship you. It's what you made us for. It's our greatest purpose. It's our greatest joy. And so I pray that we would find that purpose and find that joy here this morning and every other moment of every other day as well. Lord, be with us as we attend to your word. Help us be faithful to your word. Uh, Lord, help us have open hearts and open minds and open ears to what your word has to say and fulfill your promise that your word does not come back void. No matter how many times we read your word, no matter how familiar we may think that we are with your word, this word is always powerful. And so I pray that we would sense the power of your word this morning as we open it up and that you would use it to change us in powerful ways. Again, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for your son Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll break our passage up into two main sections. The first will be verses 12 through 22, and the second will be verses 23 through 28. That first section is primarily concerned with Paul's directions for this church's ongoing sanctification. And the second section is Paul's closing prayer for this church. So we'll start reading in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So Paul starts by giving some practical instruction for the church's sanctification. And remember how we defined sanctification a couple weeks ago. Christians are set apart by God for holiness. That's already happened. But Christians are also slowly but surely being made holy by God's power. That's a work in progress. But first, Paul addresses a sanctified church's leadership in verses 12 and 13. The church is to respect its leaders. The author of Hebrews says something similar. In chapter 13, verse 17, he tells that church to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Churches can make many mistakes when it comes to our leadership 
And bad leadership can devastate a church. Some churches put their leaders on too high of a pedestal, expect too much of them, and forget that they're sinners too. Other churches make the opposite mistake, expect too little of their leaders, and are too willing to tolerate ungodliness. Some churches make the mistake of giving their leaders blind and naive loyalty. Other churches fail to give their leaders an appropriate level of trust. But Paul calls this church to a healthy middle ground. Love your leaders, respect them, and yes, obey them, but don't worship them. Of course, this is a two-way street. A church's leaders are called to love and respect their congregation in return. How do we do that? We do it by doing our jobs. That includes working hard rather than being lazy. That includes actually shepherding the flock rather than just counting sheep or entertaining sheep. And that includes admonishing the church. A word that's used twice in this passage that refers to awkward conversations, tough love, And even giving out discipline when necessary. A sanctified church needs a healthy relationship between its people and its leaders. And that's what Paul tells us in verses 12 and 13. But then in verses 14 and 15, Paul addresses the church's sense of community. That includes a level of accountability and discipleship especially for those prone to being a bit unruly. You may notice that admonishment, accountability, discipleship is not just something that the leaders do. It's something that we all do for each other. This healthy sense of community includes help and encouragement for the weak. It includes patience, grace, and goodness for all. Not seeking revenge. Or holding grudges. In some ways, a church needs the same sort of structure, service, and selflessness that keeps a family together. It's no wonder that elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul refers to the church as a household of God. A sanctified church has a healthy sense of community. And finally, Paul addresses the church's spiritual practices in verses 16 through 22. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. What should characterize our corporate worship? What we're doing right now? Joy, prayer, and gratitude. What should characterize our individual lives as believers? The same things. Joy. Prayer, gratitude. Now, you've probably heard the difference between joy and happiness. We've talked about it here. Joy is an objective state, while happiness is more of a subjective feeling. The truth of the gospel, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his promised return... That gives churches and Christians like us reason to always be joyful, even when we don't always feel happy. 
There's a difference between those two. Now, how do we pray without ceasing? This is many people's favorite verse, but we don't know how to do it. Now, surely we can't close our eyes and hit our knees 24 hours per day. Jesus himself didn't do that. But if the main purpose of prayer is to respond to God's kindness to us, then maybe a good way to start would be to seek out evidence of God's kindness that we usually overlook and praise him for it. Thank him for it. You can do that with your eyes open or closed. You can do that kneeling or standing. You can do it whether you're in church or whether you're somewhere else. And how might we give thanks in all circumstances? Well, I suggest remembering the bedrock truths of the Christian faith. That we have been adopted by God the Father, redeemed from sin by the body and blood of God the Son, and indwelt by God the Spirit. And no circumstances, good or bad, can take that away from us. Thus, we have reason to give thanks at all times. Now, I said it would get interesting, and here's the part where it gets a little interesting. Paul gives us three more instructions regarding our spiritual practice, and these might apply particularly well to our gathered worship. That phrase, not quenching the spirit. That may indicate an openness to what God is telling us through his spirit. Of course, it's worth remembering that the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict the word that he wrote. And being open to the spirit's leading is not license for a free for all. Along similar lines, Paul tells us not to despise prophecies, but to test everything. There are debates about what Paul has in mind when he uses that word prophecy. Do prophets exist now in the same way they did in the Old and New Testaments? Is the church a non-profit organization, as some people might say? What is prophecy talking about here? Well, it could be a unique revelation from God. The kind of prophecy we see in the Bible in the fullest sense. It could be used as another word for preaching, just became interchangeable. Or it could be referring to someone's prophetic voice. You know, one of those people who has a knack for saying something that others don't want to hear. That's what prophets did. And Paul says, don't despise those people's voices. Well, whatever prophecy may refer to in this passage, the church is not to despise it. Don't just dismiss it completely out of hand. But the church should also not unquestioningly embrace it. Test it. We are to be open to the word of the Lord while also practicing discernment. And simply put, Christians seek to grow in our love for the good and the holy, to leave sin behind. As Paul puts it, to abstain from evil. That's about as simple of a statement of sanctification as you will ever hear. 
So a sanctified church needs godly and competent leaders. And if a church has them, the church should respect them. In many ways, a sanctified church needs a healthy sense of community. Like any peaceful household. And a sanctified church needs healthy spiritual practices when we're together and when we're apart. Now, the Thessalonians had already done a lot of these things right. We've seen that throughout the letter. It's very positive. But Paul encourages them to keep going. With all the pressure that they faced from the outside, The suffering and affliction for their faith that we read about back in chapters 1 and 2. With all that outside pressure, it was vital that they be healthy on the inside if they hoped to endure. And the same is true of us. Now that takes us to section number 2, verse 23. We read there. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We have chapstick out in the lobby for those who need it. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in these closing verses, Paul offers one final prayer for this church. And what does Paul pray for? Sure enough, it's the word we've been talking about all morning. Their sanctification. Paul prays that these believers, that this church would be sanctified through and through. You know, sanctification isn't just for a select group. It's not just for the elders or the pastors or the little old ladies. It's for all of us. As is usually the case in Paul's letters, the pronouns you and your In verse 23, those are plural. May the God of peace himself sanctify you all completely. And may all of your spirits and souls and bodies be kept blameless. Paul is writing to all of the Christians in that church. Every believer in Jesus Every bearer of the Holy Spirit is to be sanctified until Christ comes. In addition, sanctification doesn't just affect some of our lives, some of the time. It affects all of our lives, all of the time. You don't just put on your sanctification when you're here on Sunday mornings. It's not a switch that you flip on and off depending on the circumstances. Sanctification is seen in the car on the way out of the parking lot, at the restaurant where you eat lunch, in your home, neighborhood, work, school, and even how you act online. Sanctification happens in public and in private. It happens here and it happens elsewhere. 
It happens internally and externally. Sanctification happens in all of us, through and through. Spirit, soul, and body, words, actions, thoughts, and feelings. Every bit of us, God is shaping and molding in holiness. Now, how are we sanctified? Verse 24, Paul tells us, by God's power. He says, God himself will surely do it. There are often two bad extremes in how we understand sanctification. The first bad extreme is to assume that it is all up to us. It's an attitude that says, well, sure, God initially saved me by his grace, but from here on out, my growth is all dependent upon my hard work. It's all up to my blood, my sweat, and my tears. I got into God's family by grace, but I stay in by my efforts. That's no way to live the Christian life. The second bad extreme is an attitude of laziness. That attitude says, if sanctification is by God's power, if he will surely do it, then I guess I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit back and wait and my growth and holiness will just happen on its own. That's not helpful either. May we strive to find a good, balanced, and most importantly, biblical understanding of sanctification. Yes, we are made holy by God's power, not ours. But that doesn't mean that there isn't effort on our part. We get to participate in God's ongoing work of making us holy as he is holy. The Apostle Paul captures this tension quite well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work For his good pleasure. Paul tells the Philippians to work hard. Because God is working hard in them. We trust that God will sanctify us by his power. But we participate in that work. So Paul tells the Thessalonians what a sanctified church looks like. It has godly leaders that the congregation respects. It lives in peaceful community with one another. And it pursues holy practices both when they're together and when they're apart. Paul also prays that this church would be sanctified completely. All of them. All of us. Through and through. But we mentioned earlier that sometimes the closing words in Paul's letters can seem a bit random, a bit disjointed. So how might these two big sections tie together? And why should it matter to our church? 
Well, I suspect that Paul gives us a picture of a continual cycle here. It's almost a sort of chicken and egg sort of image. These two big ideas feed each other. Verses 12 through 22. Practical guidance for what a sanctified church looks like. Verses 23 through 28. A prayer that this church would be sanctified. That's because God will use a church with healthy leadership, healthy community, and healthy spiritual practices to sanctify people. And how does a church become like this? By being filled with sanctified people. So here's my theory. Paul calls the church in Thessalonica to be sanctified themselves so that God can use them to sanctify others. A sanctified church sanctifies people. And sanctified people make for a sanctified church. I hope and I pray that both of those things are happening here. May we as a church be sanctified by God. And may God use us to sanctify others. Now, no church is truly perfect. We've seen some of that lack of perfection in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll see it even more in 2 Thessalonians. We've seen that lack of perfection here, too. Our church has weaknesses to be addressed, sins to be repented of, And plenty of room to grow. If you haven't been here for long, talk to someone. They've got some stories. Nevertheless, by God's power, may we be a sanctified church that God uses to sanctify people. And while no church is truly perfect, every true church is being sanctified. But this won't happen apart from the final words of this letter. Those words that we're tempted to overlook. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes nearly every single one of his letters with some variation of those words. Apparently they were important to him. By that grace, may we become the sanctified church And the sanctified people God calls us to be. And by that same grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may God use us and use our church to sanctify others. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this time we've had in First Thessalonians, only scratching the surface of the depth and the richness and the wisdom and the power of your word written to this small and suffering and young underdog faithful church. Lord, I pray that you would take these words that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians some 2,000 years ago, And apply them to us. Apply them to our hearts, our minds, 
our lives, our words, our actions. These aren't just Paul's words for Thessalonica. These are your words for us. So I pray that you would use them to challenge us and shape us and form us and to sanctify us, as we've talked about so much this morning. Again, Lord, we are saints by your grace. You have already set us apart for holiness. Help us embrace that identity. Help us live out the identity that you've already given to us. Help us be holy as you are holy. Lord, again, we love you. We honor you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit, your word. We thank you for this church, Lord. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.